This summer will be the most fun and safest with swim lessons from British Swim School. Offering swim lessons to babies and kids across the U.S., British Swim School gives you the confidence to let your little ones enjoy pools and lakes safely. British Swim School has highly trained instructors who specialize in fun and gentle teaching in a small class environment. Sign up for classes now at BritishSwimSchool.com. That's BritishSwimSchool.com. British Swim School. Make a splash. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Calvin McCullough. This week, across the nation today, we're seeing an undermining of authority. We'll hear from Pastor Alan Jackson. I think we will find momentum if we'll just begin to quietly and persistently tell the truth that we lead lives under authority, and authority is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. On the week of the National Day of Prayer, we'll talk to Pastor Jack Graham. The Spirit of God moves when we pray. We'll look at our desperate need for God's help. Nearly three out of five teen girls, 57% in 2021, said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. And the loneliness that pervades our culture. You're looking at a widespread indictment of the entire culture that is now reflecting an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Thanks for joining us. Kevin McCullough, your host. Great to be with you again. I come to you in a couple of ways from my home stations here in New York City, AM 570 and AM 970, Salem Media Radio Group. Also on the Salem News Channel, you can catch me each Saturday night at 9 p.m. for That Kevin Show. We'll begin with what can at times feel like a great unraveling, an erosion of so many of our great urban areas. For some almost 15 years, I was in Chicago. I've been in the greater New York metropolitan area for now more than 20 years, and these two cities serve pretty well to illustrate the problem. Crime, both petty crime and violent crime, is skyrocketing. We see an unwillingness to prosecute offenders, and there is a pervasive willingness to demonize those who put themselves in harm's way in an effort to keep us safe. Pastor Alan Jackson of Alan Jackson Ministries recently made some comments on social media that caught my attention. He was a guest on my program. You put on Twitter recently the following, and I want you to expound on it for me. Voices with an agenda are trying to tear down authority in our world. Our law enforcement, first responders, military forces for good in our world. So we must be wiser, more courageous, and more vocal in support of those who maintain authority and make all our lives safer. On every front that I can spot, it looks like this attack against what is perceived to be authority is truly underway. Uh, what made you uh, post that? Well, I, th- I think a couple of things. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a pastor. and I see the world through that filter. And I have a heart for God's people. And I think the messaging that we're being, it, it, it cascades over us like a waterfall. In my mind, it's like we're standing under Niagara Falls with this cascade of messaging that hits us all the time. Defund the police. Uh, an open border is a really good thing. The military shouldn't be trusted. It should be a place for social experimentation. You know, we're being told that authority is bad. And in reality, our lives, we are a people under authority. We're under God's authority. The Scripture tells us we have to respect the authority in our lives. Jesus, the greatest commendation for faith that Jesus handed out was to a Roman soldier. I mean, and it was such a bizarre thing that it made his audience angry with him. But he said he didn't find anybody in Israel with greater faith than a Roman centurion. And there's all sorts of reasons that message is wrong, but Jesus still made the declaration. And 
I think we've got to come back and stand on behalf of those people who put themselves in harm's way on our behalf. Mm. I don't know of any other profession that would survive if we had to wear body cams. And every time one of us misbehaved, it became the headlines on the national news. And our police force has to live with that. And the ones who misbehave need to be identified and dealt with appropriately. But the overwhelming majority of them do good work on our behalf. Yeah. We could at least say thank you. If you went and you took a survey of the demographics of people just here in New York City, for example, that were most pro defund the police and least defund the police, you would find that the media would portray most downtrodden, the most ethnically diverse, the most um, you know under-resourced communities that would be for defunding the police and giving criminals you know a, a little bit more of a chance, a second chance more often, et cetera, et cetera. In, in reality, it's exactly the opposite. They were the last people on planet Earth that wanted anybody to defund the police. They would actually prefer to have more police and specifically more police that maybe look like um, people that live in their neighborhood or come from their streets, come from their their homes, their neighborhoods specifically. But the idea that this was uh, somehow a racially motivated thing, that defunding the police was going to benefit certain uh, racial entities or accomplish certain you know racial objectives in the culture is really turned on its head when you when you understand what the real needs of the communities are and what they're actually asking for. No, you're, you're absolutely right. That's why I think it's so important to say it. The, the church is so important. Pastors are discouraged and churches are struggling. And I think we will find momentum if we'll just begin to quietly and persistently tell the truth that we know. Hmm. That we lead lives under authority, and authority is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. That justice comes from God and not from governments. We know these things inherently, but they're being challenged in the public square. And if we will begin to quietly and persistently say these things, it will strengthen our families. If we'll say them at our kitchen tables, if we'll say it at the ball fields or the places where we take our children. And I think we will see a renewed energy and vitality in the midst of the people of God. We have to recognize the weight of the messaging that's pushing against us. Mm. And behind the messaging, there's a spiritual component. And if we'll begin to speak the truth that we know, it's it's a significant time, and we need that authority in our lives. The, the same people telling us that the police are bad are expressing authoritarian control over our lives. They're They're monitoring what we say. They're eliminating free speech. They're advocates for propaganda. So it, it's really a, it's a very manipulative approach, and the church can combat that. We're not powerless. I don't want anybody to hear and think that. The, the, the greatest power known to human beings resides within us. Hmm. And if we'll begin to align ourselves with God's truth and quietly, gently, and persistently say that truth, God created us male and female. God designed a family. God established marriage. If we will just gently begin to say those things to one another and to the people with whom we interact, We'll see the Spirit of God move on our behalf. I bow my head to pray. Alan Jackson is challenging us to do something relatively simple in principle, but something that is hard to do faithfully. That is, yield to Him, to accept His rule and authority over us. It's something that millions of people across the nation were praying for this week as the nation marked the National Day of Prayer. My colleague Don Crow turned to Pastor Jack Graham, a voice many of you might recognize from his PowerPoint program. I've asked it of others through the years because I fear that even among Christians there may settle in a sort of skepticism of, look, we've been doing this since 1952, and what a mess the country's in. <laughs> How would you respond to someone who might think that way? 
Because I would respond that uh, while we're not seeing a national revival and a spiritual awakening that we're all praying for and asking God to give us, we are seeing, I believe, signs, signals. There's an old gospel song that says, uh, mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. So we're seeing some mercy drops, and there are pockets and places where revival is happening. And uh, there are churches, in spite of the fact that, uh, and of course, revival is for the church and for God's people. That's where it starts and then spreads beyond to evangelize. But, you know, we we are seeing churches, in spite of the fact that we're hearing that attendance is down and all this data that's coming out that uh, people are, are not attending church as they did. But now we're beginning to see, actually, just a little frame of reference that there are more people in church than probably is being reported because a lot of people have moved from some of the mainline churches, frankly, some of the liberal churches, and they're going to independent churches and, and churches that don't have an active membership file and and so on. And, and I'm just saying that among my friends, both churches large and small, the pastors are reporting really great uh, moves of God in their congregation. We're seeing baptisms and evangelism take place. The Jesus Revolution that just came out in the movie with my friend Greg Laurie taking a look back at the Jesus movement of the late 60s, 70s, and just the national impact that it had. Uh, You know, just a a little thing that's happening with me. I say a little thing. I think it's a big deal. Uh, I'm doing a podcast right now on on an app called Pray.com. And when they asked me to do it, it's through the Bible is what it is. It's the Bible in a year, and I do an intro and an outro to just the reading of Scripture, a beautifully well-done reading of Scripture, and then I do an application. When they asked me to do it, I thought, well, if a couple of hundred thousand people got on that, that would be a good thing, and I'll be glad to do it. Well, as of now, we have 15 million downloads, which is not about me. I'm just the voice on there. It's about the Bible. And I do believe it, it, that there is a revival. What we need is a revival of the Bible, if you will. And revival always begins with uh, a return to God's Word in, in the Old Testament when Ezra, when the revival and the rebuilding of the walls took place in Nehemiah's day, and then Ezra and the reading of the Scripture. And I'm just seeing, I'm sensing that things are happening beyond uh, maybe the human eye right now, that God is at work. So I'm actually encouraged. I know the country's in a mess. I know it's chaotic uh, politically and, and morally. We're in a free fall morally. And this is the church needs to repent, and Christians need to repent. And there's never been a revival without genuine repentance. And you have not because you ask not. That's what the Scripture says. We're not responsible for the results when we pray, but we are commanded to pray. So we're going to keep praying that one more time before Jesus comes that we will see a great revival. Amen to that. That's a good word. And Pastor, talk, if you would, about some of the specific ways you would suggest people pray throughout the year in light of where we are as a nation now uh, and where the uh, body of Christ is right now. Can you suggest a few points uh, of prayer that you would say these would be good to focus on? You know, I hope that many more people be consistent in their personal walk and prayer life and that churches would bring back prayer meetings, bring back prayer to the congregation. Uh, We have a lot of church growth strategies and a lot of of talk about systems and processes and all the rest, but ultimately praying and uh, praying together 
will change the voltage of the church. The Spirit of God moves when we pray. And and I would just really encourage everyone who's listening to this right now that you pray for your pastor and pray for church leaders, because we do know we've had a lot of failure uh, in church leadership, pastoral leadership, pulpits, and so Pray for your pastor that God would uh, encourage him, give him strong convictions uh, without compromise, speaking truth in love, uh, teaching a biblical worldview to the congregation, because ultimately revival is not an emotional experience per se, though there's emotion involved, but ultimately it is the experience of encountering a brand new obedience to God. You know, Charles Stanley, the wonderful pastor that I knew for many years, just passed away. And he lived by a maxim that got repeated numerous times around his death and funeral. And that is, obey God and leave all the consequences with him. And so that's what we do. We're going to obey God. Jesus said we ought always to pray and not to give up. So we keep obeying God. We leave the results. We leave the consequences to him. Coming up, our desperate need for prayer. Nearly three out of five teen girls, 57% in 2021, said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Father, I'm in a desperate place. Father, I know you can bear the weight. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, Please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in part by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Kevin McCullough. The faithful effort by so many of those behind the National Day of Prayer demands recognition and is deserving of our gratitude. They have gone forward with the annual event at a time when elite media would like to ignore it as they scoff at our need for prayer at all. The irony is, so many cultural indicators point towards the fact that we need help. Yes, we need God's help. We'll turn now to Tim Clinton, co-host of Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Once again, here's Don Crow. You have a book called, uh, among many, Focus on the Future, Your Family, Your Faith, and Your Voice Matter Now More Than Ever. And I'm so glad you talked about your own family experience. Uh, I also was blessed with a rich heritage with my family. My dad, also a pastor, ironically in Pennsylvania also. Uh, But he was a man of prayer. My mom was a woman of prayer. And just for a moment, talk about from your perspective as a, uh, a licensed professional counselor, or marriage and family therapist, et cetera, why teaching our children the importance of prayer and how to do it even at young ages is so significant and can be so life-changing for them? Let me go to a recent CDC report, uh, Don, 2021 Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Very startling concerns. Nearly three out of five teen girls, you got to hear this, nearly three out of five teen girls, 57% in 2021 said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. Going on, they found in that same cohort, that same group, that 30% of the girls 
said that they had seriously considered dying by suicide. Mm. Mm. When you say, Kim, teach the significance or the importance of prayer, if we could teach our kids to know that God loves them, that he hears their prayers, the cry of their hearts, that they can come to him. What a gift. I was talking to my son today. He's working on his PhD in counseling, and we're talking about building resilience in kids. I had interviewed Kathy Cook uh, on her new book, Resilient Children. And the, the very fact that you can teach that is a gift, it's a skill, and it actually can become a part of their, their DNA, their character, that, that ability to press through hardship and brokenness because their kids are facing horrific things. Boy, if you can go down to what it means to get down on the floor and pray like I did yesterday with uh, my little four-year-old granddaughter, and that there's nothing, yeah. nothing irrelevant before God. Amen. And, and that becomes something that a 62-year-old remembers of his own father. And that's the beauty, the gift here. We have that kind of an opportunity. That's where we keep coming back as an organization at Dr. James Dobson of just holding tenaciously to what it means to have love and marriage, what it means to have strong families, and what it means to stand right now for truth, to stand on biblical truth, especially for such a time as this. And we cry out. We cry out and ask God for the seeds of hope and strength every day. Can you imagine what it means to pray together as a couple, what it means to pray together as a family, Imagine hearing your own kids pray fervently, mm. out loud, unashamedly before God. That's beauty. The numbers that Tim Clinton was citing are heartbreaking. Three out of five teen girls report feeling persistently sad or hopeless. What we're seeing in these numbers is not only limited to our youth. Dr. Albert Moeller looked at a new report from the Surgeon General from his briefing podcast. Now, in the report that was released by the Surgeon General, it's entitled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, the Surgeon General of the United States, who is, after all, not only a federal official, but also an official of the Biden administration, he goes on to tell us that this is a widespread social problem that should have our national attention. Now, just remember the screaming headlines at us over the course of the last several weeks and months. We are told that there is an epidemic of mental stress among teenagers and specifically among girls and then specifically among boys. And now you're looking at a widespread indictment of the entire culture that is now reflecting an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So let's ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for a government to say here is a huge problem? For the Surgeon General to say this is a public health crisis, when at the same time you have government largely on the side of tearing things apart rather than putting things together. The 81-page report released by the Surgeon General includes his words. He said, we know that loneliness is a common feeling that many people experience. It's like hunger or thirst. It's a feeling the body sends us when something we need for survival is missing. Millions of people in America, said the Surgeon General, are struggling in the shadows, and that's not right. That's why I issued this advisory, he said, to pull back the curtain on a struggle that too many people are experiencing, end quote. So just some basics of the Christian worldview. Number one, as Christians, we are committed to seek the welfare of other human beings made in God's image. We care about people. This is not just a report that should have the attention of the media and the nation to say, oh, that's not a good thing that there's so much loneliness. Christians look at this and recognize 
This is a matter of very legitimate concern because we would understand that as God made us relational creatures, we cannot be healthy without some level of sustainable relationships. It's interesting to see that Amanda Seitz reporting for the Associated Press gets right to this, quote, Research shows that Americans who have become less engaged with worship houses, community organizations, and even their own family members in recent decades have steadily reported an increase in feelings of loneliness. The number of single households has also doubled over the last 60 years. The crisis has, quote, deeply worsened when COVID-19 spread, prompting schools and workplaces to shut their doors, sending millions of Americans to isolated home away from relatives or friends. We then have the documentation that friends are actually spending about 20 minutes a day less relating to friends than just back in the year 2020. Now, how exactly that's measured, I don't know. But I think most of us intuitively say, you know, there's probably something to that. This epidemic of loneliness is certainly real. But I mention all of that and the national conversation, the national emergency that is basically declared by the Surgeon General of the United States in order to look at this problem and as Christians think deeply for a moment about how Christians would have to look at this a bit differently than perhaps everyone else. Number one, this is where Christians understand that not only has God made us as relational creatures, that means we have relational capacity. It also means we have relational needs. We have relational strengths, but we also have relational vulnerabilities. It is also true that God has given us in society, he's given us in the structures of creation, those things that would make for health and would make for stability and would make for wholeness. And I want us to think about that for just a moment, because we need to understand that here you have the federal government of the United States of America pointing to something we know is real, pointing to a human crisis we know is real. And yet, as you look at this, the question would have to be not only what caused this, but what could be the answer to this? What could be the remedy to this? Now, I mentioned the structures of creation, because the structures of creation include not only the fact that God made human beings in his image as male and female, but he did make us for community. When he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that came with a mandate to create what we would know as culture. And that culture is demonstrated in what we might even call eventually civilization. It means that you have webs of relationships and you have people working together. You can accomplish more. In an agricultural society, you can feed more people if you work together at the effort. And furthermore, you have a differentiation of labor. Eventually, you have some people who are good at this, some people who are good at that. And as you look at this, you recognize that where you find that kind of human community working, you find not only the community working, you find the people within it healthier. Coming up, man was not meant to live alone. That's a picture, first of all, of marriage. But beyond even that, it's a testimony to family. It's a testimony to the fact that we desperately need to belong to someone. Albert Moeller continues on loneliness when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Lonely. I'm Mr. Lonely. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com in five minutes. You will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. As we're looking today at what the Surgeon General's report has called our epidemic of loneliness and isolation, 
Many of you may be wondering, how did we get here? I'm sure that COVID and the isolation of the pandemic played a part, but Dr. Al Mohler is looking at trends that began long before that. Let's pick up that conversation. When you look at this epidemic of loneliness in the United States, you ask the question, what's changed? Well, let's think about some of the things that have changed. Number one, we have dismantled the family. It's not just divorce. It is not just the mobility of so many in society. You have the record here that an increasing number of Americans actually live in single-person households. We're told that that percentage has doubled over the course of the last 60 years. Now, remember that the Scripture tells us something about that, including the fact that man was not meant to live alone. And just in a general context of human relationships, and of course, that's a picture, first of all, of marriage, but beyond even that, it's a testimony to family. It's a testimony to the fact that we desperately need to belong to someone. We desperately need to be related to someone. We need someone who cares about us. Frankly, we need someone who's watching us, observing us. We need to be related to someone. Now, we're not in a position to say everyone who's living alone is simply chosen to live that way. The point is, we've got to speak honestly about vast changes in the society that have made it more likely that people will be lonely and less likely that they will not be. And so we'd have to look at this and say, you know, you can't talk about this honestly as a national epidemic without recognizing that loneliness starts out by definition as a personal problem. And this is where the Christian understanding of the world with the notion of creation order and subsidiarity just tells us that all these pathologies, but in particular loneliness, which points to a lack of relationships, that really points us back to the fact that the most basic of all relationships is that between members of a family. And that starts out with marriage, the union of a man and a woman, and then the children that are added to that union, and then extended family and what sociologists call kinship structures. You know, that's where we have relationships that, at least in terms of children coming in every generation, they don't even have to decide about. They are simply born to families, and a part of that is being a gift to that family and to be gifted with that family. And the principle of subsidiarity, joined with the Christian biblical understanding of creation order, means that if you disrupt marriage, you disrupt family, you disrupt extended family— you're going to weaken the things that make human beings stronger. You're going to make loneliness more likely, not less likely. There are several other things that are reflected even in this report. One thing is mobility. So long as people basically lived pretty close to where they were born and they died pretty much near to where they were born, you had a greater opportunity for sustained relationships in a community, in a neighborhood, in a city, a town. You start to add the mobility that is now so much a fact of a modern hyper-industrialized consumer culture. And then you understand we're basically baking into the cake a good deal of potential for loneliness. You have kids that sometimes have to move from one city to another. And even as the family moves from one city to another, they have to start all over again building friends. They have to get to know a new school. Now, this is not to say that those children are doomed to loneliness. It is to say they are certainly starting out with a deficit And then you add to that the context of the pandemic of COVID-19, when you didn't even have the children together in normal settings, and you talk about social distancing and all the rest. Well, we can understand that we're looking at a problem that actually has a predictable timeline. Just in terms of the last couple of years, that timeline would involve COVID, but expanding it over, say, the last 20 or 30 years, that timeline also includes digital technology and social media. 
Who would have thought that social media would turn out to be one of the most antisocial developments in all of human history? It's one of the most oddly and wrongly named technologies ever to appear. What you have in social media has not increased social health. It has increased social unhealth. Because as much as you can receive data by digital transmission and as much as you can get interesting information, as much as you can actually have communication, you do not have the depth of relationship. Interesting, by the way, One of the things that is most missing from social media is nuance and facial expressions. That is to say that if you have, say, a hard conversation, if a parent has to have a hard conversation with a child, a brother has to have a hard conversation with a sister, the ability to do so face-to-face with facial expressions and body language and all the rest is categorically different than if you just send someone a text. Now, if you need to communicate something urgently right now, then send the text. But if it's really important, don't let that text be all that you send. We are human creatures. We are made in God's image. We are relational by God's design. And we also have all kinds of different senses, and we need to deploy those in the task of communicating and socializing with one another. It makes a whole lot of difference if someone is actually seen to be offering a faint smile while saying something that might be a bit hard. That's a very different context. Coming up. Grace is the gospel itself. An appreciation of the wonder of God's work on our behalf when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. As we look back at all we've covered in the program thus far today, it's clear that we have some profound cultural and moral challenges. But more fundamentally, I hope you recognize our problem is spiritual. And our solution is a gospel that is so good, good beyond words, but a message that we need to embrace. If you've not embraced it, I hope you'll take this next interview to heart. If you have embraced it, I hope this will stir your heart anew and afresh for a clear appreciation of God's abundant work of grace on your behalf. Georgine Rice turned to Andrew Farley, talking about his book, The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? From 93.9 FM KBDQ in Portland. Why is it that we have to be taught and retaught to understand and embrace and fully enjoy the, the benefits, the lavish grace that God has for his children? Yeah, well, we grow up uh, going to school, we work hard, and they give us good grades, and we go to the workplace and uh, give it our best effort, and they give us a promotion. So we're very much accustomed to an achieving system, and then we come to believe in Christ, and we now are engaged in a receiving system. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what we experience on planet Earth, and so Grace turns everything upside down. It's it's not about our trying. It, it's really about our trusting, and it's not about what we're doing for God. It's really about what He did for us. So 
it's counterintuitive. It's an assault on the ego at times, mm. and we just have to be receivers of God's grace. You begin with an exploration of the Old Testament law, which is perhaps where some of our confusion comes from, and you contrast that with the New Covenant. Can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of the two different systems and, you know, the fact that we're under the New Covenant, the benefit we enjoy because of what Christ has done? Yeah, I don't think we realize how stringent and even impossible the law really was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 613 commands uh, staring us in the face, everything from dietary laws to uh, ceremonial washings and sacrificial regulations. And, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament law as 10 rules written on stone, uh, but it was much larger than that. And for a reason, I mean, Jesus comes along and basically shows that it's impossible. Hey, you think you're doing good avoiding adultery. I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same thing. And you think you're doing great just avoiding murder. Well, I tell you, if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murder. Um, he's raising the bar and showing the impossibility of true law keeping so that they would realize their need for God's grace. And, you know, God's grace is the polar opposite. It, it's not us trying our best to get close to God and stay close. It's, in fact, uh, the idea that Jesus made us close through the death, burial, and resurrection. Everything is free to the believer. Uh, we're forgiven for free. We're made righteous for free. We're brought near to God for free at no cost to us because it costs Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. And then you have the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that heap tradition and all sorts of rules that were never intended uh, on top of the law, making it even more impossible, but somehow believing that if we just add more to it, if we just try to clarify it in our own strength, then somehow we're going to measure up to what Jesus himself declared is an impossible standard. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was they were <laughs> they were adding things that were achievable for them personally, and then they were creating loopholes and they were creating exceptions and addendums and that sort of thing to try to make it palatable and doable. And, you know, the New Testament reveals if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all of it. Uh, Galatians says you're under a curse if you're under the law because cursed is everyone who does not obey everything. So the law is not multiple choice. Uh, it's not choose your own adventure. Uh, it's not like a buffet line at your favorite restaurant. The law is an all or nothing proposition, and that's why we need God's grace instead. Now, let's begin by defining grace. How is it different from mercy or even forgiveness? Well, I mean, mercy is when you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to show you mercy. Uh, but if he pulls out a $1,000 bill and hands it to you, that's grace. I mean, grace is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's uh, it's just excessive and, and beyond measure. It's undeserved favor. And that's that's the difference between grace and mercy. But I think the average Christian, we're just looking at grace as, well, forgiveness and heaven. You know, God's a banker that canceled my debt, and he's a travel agent that has booked me for heaven. But God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace also means that God is a heart surgeon. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a new heart, filled us with new desires, gave us his spirit. So God's grace is equipping. And anybody that throws stones at God's grace or wants to lessen God's grace is going to lessen their victory over sin.
as I look at the Christian world, here we are afraid of God, trying to impress God, trying hard to work for God to get in, in his good graces. We're we're in this achieving system, and yet we're failing and we're sinning just fine. So what if we gave God's grace a chance? I mean, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And do we believe him on that, that, that forgiveness and grace and the kindness of the Lord, that's what leads us to repentance and motivates and inspires us? Um, how is grace connected to the gospel message in, in coming to Christ and recognizing what he's done for us? How does that connection um, help us better understand the value and the virtue of grace? Yeah, well, grace is not a special focus. It's not a special emphasis. Uh, grace is the gospel itself. I mean, we're told in, in the book of Acts that the gospel is called the gospel of grace. That's Acts twenty twenty four. Uh, we're told elsewhere that uh, God has given us grace upon grace, that Jesus is full of grace. Uh, Romans says we're standing in grace. Uh, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. I mean, we could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of passages showing us that grace is the very core of the gospel. In fact, it's what differentiates Christianity from world religions. I mean, the common theme in world religions is you do your part, you work your hardest, God will grade on a curve. You try to get clean and get pure and get right through your obedience, and maybe, just maybe, uh, you will satisfy the deity. And that's what we see in world religions with a founder and a rule book, and you keep the rules, and you're in good standing. If you fail to keep the rules, you're punished. And that's religion, but that's not uh, what Christianity really is. Uh, Christianity is about relying on the work of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, he hung on that cross and said it's finished. And then, of course, we learn through the New Testament that salvation is free. By grace, we're saved. Coming up. We're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. We continue with Andrew Farley. Stay with us. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we hear those words from the book of Ephesians, our heart can oftentimes listen and then want to respond, yes, but what about my personal performance? Let's pick up on more of the conversation with Andrew Farley talking about the grace message. Is the gospel really this good? What does it mean to die to sin? Um, we struggle throughout our lifetime because we still are in the flesh. What does it mean to die to, to sin? And what role does grace play in the, uh, the working out, the sanctification that is part of the life of every believer? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we actually look at this phrase, die to sin, uh, it's used in past tense for the believer. So this happened to us at salvation. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified mm -hmm. with Christ, and Romans 6 says, my old self died. Paul even says, 
you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And so if I could just wrap my mind around the fact that it's not just that Jesus died for my sins. I died with Jesus. And when I died with Jesus, I died to sin's power. And that means sin doesn't have to have dominance over me anymore. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to who I really am. But there's a process there. I mean, you're right. I'm learning and I'm growing in that truth. I I don't have perfect understanding. And so God says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But let me just let me just clarify one thing mm-hmm. that I think is really lacking in in the average person's understanding. This doesn't mean that my heart is wicked and deceitful and all those things that we like to say. No, you've got the new heart. What you need is is new attitudes, new perspectives, the renewing of the mind. So what we need to tell believers is you've got a new nature. Uh, your new spiritual nature is that you're one spirit with the Lord, and yet you've got the stinking thinking, and that's what the flesh is. It's stinking thinking. It's it's old attitudes. It's remnants of that old self in your attitudes, but the old self is gone. So you need to be reprogrammed in your mind, let go of fleshly thinking, and you ask me about you know, what's the best way forward? Well, you fuel up. I mean, you fuel up on God's truth and you fuel up on God's grace and you set your mind on the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel. And I think if we learn who we are in Christ, then we can be ourselves and express Jesus at the same time. I mean, we're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Andrew Farley. We've got the entire conversation posted at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're there, take a moment to sign up for our podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, and never miss these and other great conversations. Start at ChristianOutlook.com. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schubin, producers David Passan and Nick Malone, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. Can you have too many houseplants? I don't think so. Get some Leaf Joy by Proven Winners Houseplants. They have varieties like you've never seen. Big, small, tall, colorful, even some that grow in just water. And the quality is unreal. There is a Leaf Joy by Proven Winners Houseplant for every room in your home. They even come with care instructions. Leaf Joy by Proven Winners. Bring nature inside. Shop for them at the Home Depot or your favorite garden center.